If you are uh, following any of the evangelical forums on the internet or if you read any of the conservative news websites, you know already that this week John MacArthur sent an open letter to the governor of California calling him to repentance. The governor of our state had placed billboards across the country uh, telling people that uh, if they couldn't get an abortion in their state, they could come to California. And he punctuated the billboard with a quotation from scripture that's a reference to the second great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, as if that has anything to do with butchering babies. Uh, and when John MacArthur saw that, he was so uh, righteously indignant about that, that he wrote an open letter to the governor uh, calling him to repentance. And it, it, uh, it has left quite a mark, I think, on the public discussion. But the question I keep getting from people is, do you think Governor Newsom really will repent? Is there any chance, any possibility in the world that he will repent? I asked that same question to John MacArthur. And uh, uh, he said, it doesn't seem likely, does it? And I think that as well, but I want to point out that there are some precedents in Scripture where wicked rulers actually heeded the Word of God and repented. And I've chosen a passage where that's actually the subject for our message this morning. In fact, we're going to look at one wicked ruler who repented and one who didn't. In, in sequential chapters in the book of Daniel. And I chose this passage months ago, actually, before any of this business with Governor Newsom came up. Uh, when Pastor Dave called me and asked me to speak here, this was the passage I chose that very week. So it's appropriate for this week. And I want to go there. Daniel chapter 4. We're going to look at chapter 4 and chapter 5 together, or not together, but in sequence. Most of you probably noticed that in the past two years, the, the culture has been melting down at frightening speed. And our culture seems to be embracing so many irrational and anti-Christian beliefs about things like truth and morality and justice. And, and some of our, many of our country's political leaders are openly and maliciously hostile to Christianity. I'm nearly 70 years old, and I can remember when there was basically one woman in America uh, who was an outspoken atheist, and, uh, and she was kind of embarrassed even to be, she was noisy, but, but I, she was an embarrassment. Uh, nowadays, it seems like atheism has, is quickly becoming the majority opinion, and many of our leaders have become hostile to Christianity, having turned morality itself on its head. Their political stance is distinguished by the passion with which they champion all kinds of sexual perversions and abortion and hostility towards law enforcement. They are determined to indoctrinate your children and grandchildren with their values, and they literally have the political clout to make that happen. You've lived through a series of calamities and public unrest that have been exploited and in some cases, I think, deliberately caused by politicians and government officials. And they've been cheerled by the legacy media over the past decade. You must certainly be aware of the effects of government policy in the COVID crisis and how that has eroded our freedom of worship and freedom of assembly. And I know that as you watch all of this happen in our country, it's all very disconcerting. 
But I want to remind you this morning that God is sovereign. His plan and his purpose will not be thwarted, no matter how bleak we feel things are at any given moment. And even if the culture around us grows more and more hostile to truth and to Scripture, as I'm certain it's going to, in the ultimate sense, we believers have nothing to fear. Many of the cultures that have dominated the world throughout biblical history and all the way through church history, these cultures have been far worse than the circumstances that we are now living through. So it is no threat to the advance of Christ's kingdom for our culture and secular culture to melt down. Jesus himself said, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Notice he puts it in past tense. He has already overcome the world. Hardship and opposition have been standard fare for Christians for two millennia now. We've enjoyed in our generation maybe 20 or 30 decades of uh, relative freedom and peace. But ordinary Christianity has historically, if you go all the way back to the apostolic era, Christianity historically has been beset with hard trials for believers. This world is not our home, and in fact, it's hostile to us. And we need to accept and embrace that and understand that because God is sovereign, we can trust him to keep us and to bring us to heaven and to empower us to grow in Christ-likeness no matter how bad the world around us gets. And God is sovereign even now over the hearts of those who are so determined to deny the truth and overthrow his order. That was the starting verse in our scripture reading this morning. Even the king's heart is in the hands of the Lord, and he turns it any way he wants to. So God can overrule the wickedness of men, and he also can use their evil deeds for good. And at times, he'll even convert them and cause them to confess the truth and cease their opposition. He did that, for example, with Saul of Tarsus in the New Testament, and sometimes We forget that in a few remarkable cases, he did it in the Old Testament as well. He converted the whole city of Nineveh in the time of Jonah. And in the story that I want to look at at with you this morning, he converted the man who, if not for his conversion, might have been the most evil, powerful villain other than Satan himself in the entire Old Testament. And I'm talking, of course, about Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. At the peak of his career, he was literally the most powerful ruler in the world and perhaps arguably the most wicked man in the world. He gives his own testimony about his conversion in Daniel chapter 4, our chapter. So that's where I want us to start this morning. And here's my plan. We're going to survey Daniel 4 without reading every verse just to give us some context, and then I want to take a slightly closer look at Daniel chapter 5. And Daniel chapter 5 is where we're going to spend a lot of our time and land there and draw some major points. So let's start with Daniel 4. This is one of the most unusual and unexpected and uplifting chapters in all of Scripture. It is the record of a document that was written by Nebuchadnezzar himself And Daniel includes it in the inspired record. You know, if we were to take the entire record of, uh, the biblical record of Nebuchadnezzar and exclude this chapter, 
we would, as I said, we would rank him among the primary villains of the Old Testament. He had the most power. He ruled the most territory. He did the most harm to the Davidic dynasty in Judah. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was a Chaldean, and he was king of imperial Babylon. Babylon, of course, is the one political entity in Scripture that most clearly symbolizes everything that is unholy, everything that is worldly, everything that glorifies the power of humanity. The book of Revelation repeatedly refers to the regime of Antichrist as Babylon the Great. And in Revelation 17.4, we encounter a, a symbolic woman, which Scripture says is, she's arrayed in fine purple and scarlet, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And that symbolizes the religious system of Antichrist. Revelation 17, verse 5 tells us, On her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And then when an angel who announces the final destruction of the Babylonian system of politics and religion... Uh, comes on the scene, he he makes this announcement. It goes like this. Revelation 18, verse 2. The angel called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. So understand this. In the Bible, Babylon is a symbol for rank evil. And that's fitting because... The city of Babylon was uh, the seat of earthly evil and every false religion and the Babylonian empire represented the the peak of evil policy in all earthly political systems. This was as bad as it ever got. And like the Babylon that's referred to in those end times prophecies in Revelation, ancient Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar was both a political and a religious entity. This is what's happening in our country today, by the way. All this, all this stuff about transgenderism and the sexual revolution and all of that, that is the religion of the American political left. And in Babylon, it was like that. Religion and politics were blended, and it all had strong sexual overtones. And the king himself served as the great high priest of this wicked system. He was considered the incarnation of everything the Babylonians worshipped, And they purposely tried to exalt human glory over the name of Yahweh. Just like so many powerful politicians today do. And in fact, as we're about to see, in ancient Babylon, the Hebrew God became the focus and the brunt of all of their worst blasphemies. He was considered the enemy of the Babylonian system, and he was. The Babylonians understood that Yahweh stood against every religious and political value that was precious to them. Nebuchadnezzar was the founder of this wicked empire. He had a warlike disposition. He won a decisive military defeat over the combined Egyptian and Assyrian armies at the Battle of Carchemish. And that was a major turning point in world history. You probably studied it somewhere in in, in school when you studied world history, but they pass over it pretty quickly. The Battle of Carchemish is where Nebuchadnezzar defeated everything, and from then on, and by the way, 
as I said, it's a major turning point in world history. It's also recorded in Scripture. You can read about it, Jeremiah 46, verse 2. And from then on, no one could stop Nebuchadnezzar from conquering anyone he chose. He could go anywhere and defeat any army in the world. And so he picked fights with every other known nation within his reach, and he overthrew all of them. He defeated Judah and laid waste to Jerusalem. He captured King Jehoiakim and put him in chains and carried him off to Babylon. He drove most of the inhabitants of Judah into exile and slavery in Babylon. And that was the start of the Babylonian captivity. And it was 70 long years before the Jews were allowed to return. So when they did return, it was a totally different generation. It was a generation of people who had never lived in the Promised Land, and listen to this, Second Chronicles 36, verse 7. Nebuchadnezzar also carried part of the vessels of the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in his palace in Babylon. And the second verse of Daniel chapter 1 likewise describes that very same event. Daniel 1, verse 2, Nebuchadnezzar brought the vessels of the house of God to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Now, notice this. The treasury of Nebuchadnezzar's God was part of the royal palace where Nebuchadnezzar lived. He had devised a religion that was based on his own power, his own human achievements, and the glory of all of his conquests. And that is what he worshipped. And in that regard, he was a very religious man. The truth is, he thought of himself as godlike. So Nebuchadnezzar was as proud and as powerful as any man who ever lived. If anyone ever thought of himself as the captain of his own soul and the master of his own fate, Nebuchadnezzar did. He believed he was powerful and he had made himself and he could do practically anything. You could ask any citizen of ancient Babylon... Who is the highest sovereign and the most powerful entity in the entire universe? And without hesitation, they would say, it's King Nebuchadnezzar. He was the living epitome of everything profane and unholy. And the entire principle of his religion lay in the overconfidence that he placed in his own sovereignty. He was perhaps the last human character in the Old Testament that you would ever expect to be humbled and converted and persuaded to glorify God. And yet, that is exactly what happens in Daniel 4. And you have Nebuchadnezzar's own testimony about it. He had already had at least two significant encounters with the Hebrew God. So he had rejected God emphatically twice. Daniel had interpreted his dream in chapter 2. And Daniel's interpretation of the dream, Nebuchadnezzar was told that his kingdom would be superseded by a succession of kingdoms, each one less glorious than the previous one. And that, of course, was not good news for Nebuchadnezzar. But he was clearly impressed with Daniel's ability to interpret the dream. And at the time, he gave some kind of lip service to Daniel's God, Yahweh, Chapter 2, verse 47 of Daniel. Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. In other words, he interpreted the dream. And so Nebuchadnezzar elevated Daniel to a position of high authority 
under the king. He gave him first place among the wise men. His wise men, these were called, in the Old Testament, it's the same word for magi. It's the same group of soothsayers and wise men who sent men with gifts at the birth of Christ in the New Testament. But these words of praise at the end of chapter 2, where it seems he's praising God, he gives lip service to how great God is, it's clearly not from his heart. He really didn't believe in the sovereignty of God because he didn't believe that this prophecy that came to him through a dream was fixed and inevitable. And so his response in chapter 3 was to build a massive golden idol. This is an image that in Nebuchadnezzar's mind probably represented himself and his kingdom. And he set up this massive colossus, this idol, to be worshipped. And that golden image, if you, if you read the text of Daniel, you cannot miss this. His golden image was an echo, an altered echo of the dream he had in chapter 2. As if to say, in the dream... The statue had a chest and arms of silver and thighs of bronze and legs of iron and, and, and feet of iron and clay. So as you go down, it gets less glorious all the time. And, and it's as if Nebuchadnezzar was saying, there's no need for more than one empire. There's no need for this succession of kingdoms that gets less glorious with time. The idol, I believe, represented Nebuchadnezzar's view of Babylonian power and glory, and it was different purposely from the divine prophecy. He was saying, in effect, no empire of lesser glory will ever overthrow my mighty works. He was determined to write his own history, and this was quite simply an emphatic rejection of God's sovereignty. But you remember the story, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down and worship Nebuchadnezzar's Colossus, and, and their experience in the burning, fiery furnace was the occasion for Nebuchadnezzar's second encounter with the Hebrew God. When those three Hebrews survived the furnace, at the end of Daniel 3, Nebuchadnezzar makes a second sort of half-hearted acknowledgement that Yahweh is greater than he reckoned, and that Yahweh is not someone to be trifled with. Daniel 3.28, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And verse 29, Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue this way. Now, that sounds good again, but that is not a genuine expression of true faith. These, I think, are reluctant concessions. He's basically saying, the Hebrew God is greater than I thought. He is able to rescue these guys out of this, the furnace. But and Nebuchadnezzar, obviously, is a superstitious man. So he doesn't want people in his nation just, you know, bad-mouthing this powerful God who he knows can do damage to him. He can see that God is capable of causing him great trouble, but he doesn't want to acknowledge that God is sovereign over him. And the experience Nebuchadnezzar describes in chapter 4 changes all of that, changes him. Again, the king himself, Nebuchadnezzar, wrote what is in Daniel 4. And it starts and ends with powerful statements of faith. Verse 2. It seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. 
How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. So he exalts God specifically by acknowledging that God is greater than him, assuming he now accepts the prophecy that his kingdom is not going to endure for generation to generation, but he knows God's will. And so he tells his story. Now, time doesn't permit us to read all of chapter 4, but I hope you've turned there, and I want you to try to follow along, and let's just survey some of the highlights. Verse 4, this is very near the end of Nebuchadnezzar's career. He is at ease in his house, verse 4, and he has another terrifying dream. And so like he did in chapter 2, he summons the wise men to interpret the dream. And again, Daniel is the only one who can interpret the dream. Verse 10, it's a dream about a massive tree this time. Verse 11, its top reached to heaven. And it was visible to the end of the whole earth. But a message comes from heaven, verse 13, saying, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Verse 16, Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. Now, when Daniel hears this dream, verse 19 says, He was astonished and dismayed, and he remained silent for about an hour, that's what the Hebrew means. He is stunned, and then Daniel gives the interpretation, verse 24. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven for seven long years till... You know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives, to it, and gives it to whom he will. In other words, until you acknowledge the sovereignty and majesty of God, you're going to live out in the field like a beast. Verse 26, until you know that heaven rules. And that's exactly what happened. Verse 28, all of this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. First, he was given a year's opportunity to repent, but verse 29, at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. So he's still enthralled with his own greatness. He's musing to himself about the the glories of all his achievements, talking to himself probably about how great he was. And by the way, the monuments that Nebuchadnezzar had built for himself They were stunningly magnificent by any human standard. He built, for example, the Ishtar Gate, which is a massive edifice of glazed bricks that looks great even to this day. That gate was located by German archaeologists in the early 20th century, and it was moved brick by brick to Berlin, where you can see it today at the Pergamon Museum there. I've seen it, and it is spectacular. Nebuchadnezzar built these colorful temples. He used these glazed bricks. So although it was all brick, it was very colorful. And uh, he built temples and shrines to all of the gods whose peoples he had conquered. The main street of Babylon was a wide processional that was paved with these bricks and lined with fabulous buildings. 
He dug canals and reservoirs and, and built dams. He made the outer walls of the capital city 350 feet high and 87 feet thick. Massive building projects. He dug canals and, and, uh, and saved water and made this city, although it's in the middle of the desert, a fine place to live. And inside the walls of the city, there were two more rows of inner walls and moats that were arranged in an ingenious way to make the city of Babylon impenetrable. There was no way an army could ever get in there and overthrow the city. If an army attacked from the north, he could open the floodgates that would deluge the area north of the city and make it impossible for either footmen or horsemen to mount any kind of effective assault. It would make the armies sitting ducks for his archers. The city was decorated with massive statues and monuments Bronze bulls, brazen serpents, gold-covered structures. The hanging gardens of Babylon were one of the true wonders of the ancient world. And ample water was available through a sophisticated irrigation system. In its prime, Babylon, the city, was a magnificent display of human achievement and earthly glory. And so here's Nebuchadnezzar in the, in the, at the peak of his advanced years walking on the roof of his opulent palace, looking over all that he had accomplished, verse 30, and the king answered and said to himself, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And verse 31, While those words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling place shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And so, for the next seven years, Nebuchadnezzar suffered under the delusion that he was a cow. He self-identified as a cow. He lived like a cow. He ate like a cow. He slept outdoors like a cow. And he held fast to his stubborn unbelief like a donkey. By the way, this is a known form of mental illness. It's, it has a name. It's called clinical boanthropy. It's a psychological disorder in which a human believes that he's a cow, a bovine. Look it up. It's in Wikipedia. It's a, a rare psycho, psychiatric syndrome where the afflicted person thinks and acts and lives like an animal. It's becoming maybe more common if you see the furry movement. But in this case... It was clearly God who afflicted Nebuchadnezzar this way. God literally drove him crazy and kept him in that state until Nebuchadnezzar confessed the sovereignty of God. That is what is known as irresistible grace. You know, I've known some crazy Arminians, but this one takes the cake. You might wonder why in seven years' time the Babylonians didn't get themselves a new king. But this wasn't a democracy where you can simply elect a new leader. World history is actually full of czars and dictators who were stark raving mad. Look that up on Wikipedia. In fact, there is a Wikipedia entry titled List of Mentally Ill Monarchs. 
I think it's getting longer every day, frankly. <laughs> Some interesting reading material there. Seriously, look it up. List of mentally ill monarchs. So this wasn't as unusual as you might think. And Nebuchadnezzar's madness lasted for seven years, and then he finally looked up from the cow pasture and made this thoroughly Calvinistic statement of faith. A confession of faith, verse 34, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and no one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? That verse, by the way, is a a perfect summary of the whole theme of the book of Daniel, that God does all his will and no one can thwart his plan or challenge it. The whole story of Daniel is about the sovereignty of God. I'll come back to that later. But here's the rest of Nebuchadnezzar's testimony, verse 36. At the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. That's pretty encouraging, isn't it? I hope Newsom reads that. And this time... There is every reason to think that Nebuchadnezzar has genuinely been converted. Scripture says nothing else about him after this. By the time we get to chapter 5, he is dead. But I think that if this was a false conversion, Scripture would not have recorded it in Nebuchadnezzar's own words. And we also would have heard something about how he fell away or how God ultimately judged him and destroyed him. So I gather this is a sincere confession of a genuinely converted man, and I hope to meet him in heaven. It's one of my favorite episodes in the Old Testament. Uh, In Old Testament history, it ranks right up there with the revival in Nineveh during Jonah's time. And in fact, those two events, the revival in Nineveh and the conversion of Nebuchadnezzar, those two things are remarkable for precisely the same reasons. Both accounts stress the absolute sovereignty of God in the salvation of the lost. Both of those incidents have to do with the unexpected conversion of Gentiles, wicked Gentiles, Both events are are simply and dispassionately recorded in just one chapter apiece, without much drama, without any elaboration. Neither event is ever mentioned anywhere else in the Bible or in secular history. And although both the revival in Nineveh and the conversion of Nebuchadnezzar might be expected to signal a massive change in the flow of human history... Neither of those events had any long-term effect on the wicked course of this world. Nineveh reverted to hardcore paganism within a generation, and it was overthrown completely within a hundred years. Nebuchadnezzar died, and his heirs tried to erase the memory of Daniel's God from the collective national consciousness of Babylon. 
And that is precisely what we see in Daniel 5. By the way, I said neither of those events are mentioned elsewhere in Scripture. Jesus alludes to the Nineveh incident when he upbraids the cities in the New Testament. And he says, the men of Nineveh will stand in judgment against Capernaum and the other cities, which is to say Jesus himself expects to see them in heaven. He knows they're there. So I think he's affirming that the conversion of the Ninevites was real, and I think the same thing is true here. But in Daniel 5, the scene changes. So fast forward about 25 years here. 25 years elapsed between the end of Daniel 4 and the beginning of Daniel 5. According to the best records of secular history, the event described in Daniel 5 occurs on October 12th of 539 B.C. So we're coming up on the anniversary of that, just a week or two. The month and the day of this event are absolutely certain. The year differs slightly according to various secular historians, but it is autumn of the year. Nebuchadnezzar has by now been dead for about 23 years. And in fact, after Daniel 5, he's never again mentioned anywhere in Scripture. And in this chapter, it's pretty clear that he's been dead for a while, 23 years. And the ruler who is the subject of Daniel 5 is Belshazzar. Verse 2 refers to Nebuchadnezzar as his father, but it's using that word in a Hebrew sense. I think it just means ancestor because Nebuchadnezzar was actually Belshazzar's grandfather. Some of the gaps in the biblical account are filled in for us by secular history. And the record shows that after Nebuchadnezzar died in 562 BC, there were two and a half decades of political upheaval in Babylon. The king who succeeded Nebuchadnezzar was called Evil Merodach. And he's mentioned in 2 Kings 25, 27, also mentioned in Jeremiah 52, verse 31. Those two verses are practically identical. And they both say that Evil Merodach finally released Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, from prison 37 years into the Babylonian captivity. But secular Babylonian records record that Evil Merodach ruled only just two years. And he was succeeded by Nergal Sherezer, who is mentioned twice in Jeremiah 39. Nergal Sherezer reigned for less than four years, and he was succeeded on the throne by another ruler who held the throne for less than a year. And he was overthrown by Nabonidus, who was the last king of the Babylonian Empire. Nabonidus was apparently married to one of Nebuchadnezzar's daughters, and so his firstborn son was Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, and he named him Belshazzar. So Belshazzar is Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, and Nabonidus, the last king of Babylon, is his father. Nabonidus had made his son, Belshazzar, his co-regent, giving him all the same rights and powers that he enjoyed as king. And he was to be Nabonidus' successor, would have been Nabonidus' successor if the Babylonian Empire hadn't been overthrown, but it was, and we're going to hear how. When Nabonidus took the Babylonian army out to answer the, an assault by the Medes and the Persians, Belshazzar remained in command over the city of Babylon. He occupied the palace, he had full authority over all of the nation's affairs, and he decided to host a banquet. Uh, it's a massive banquet. It's like 
Like any kid, dad's away, let's have a party. So he has this banquet with the emphasis on drunkenness and revelry. Verse 1, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Now, don't get the wrong impression here. Belshazzar was about 35 years old at the time. So he's not your run-of-the-mill adolescent throwing a big party in the palace while dad is away. This is actually much more than that. Untold thousands of armed Medes and Persians were camped just outside the city walls. And they had been occupied with some kind of digging project for weeks. And the Babylonians thought that they were trying to undermine those massive outer walls of Babylon or build a siege ramp to get over the walls. But with remember I described all the interior levels of moats and smaller walls with so many layers of, of defense, the Babylonians thought these walls are impenetrable, and if they manage to get through the outside ones, they'll still be sitting ducks for us. So they weren't worried. And so this gala, this party, is a deliberate public statement to show that Belshazzar is perfectly safe, he feels secure, he is defiant in the face of his adversary's assault, and though these massive armies have gathered outside the city, he's not afraid. So this is not just a party, it's a pagan religious ceremony, it's a, it's a bacchanal offered as a sacrament to summon the aid of this broad pantheon of pagan deities. Verse 4, they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So all the idols they could think of, they're summoning to their defense and praising them. There's a lot of debauched carousing going on, too, with sexual overtones. That's the point of the women who are mentioned in verse 3, Belshazzar's wives and his concubines. And so these girls are drinking along with the men of the Babylonian ruling class. So this is a wicked celebration from every perspective, but it's also, they consider it a religious event. And every detail Scripture gives us in this chapter portrays Belshazzar as a obstinate unbeliever. He is hostile to the truth. He is secure in his unbelief. He is committed to pagan spirituality, and he is impervious to any kind of reflection or correction or any other expression of humility. Chapter 5 is actually, I think, a continuation of the theme of Daniel 4, which, as I said, the central theme in the book of Daniel, the sovereignty of God. And so here we see side by side in the span of two chapters both sides of Romans 9, 18, that God has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whoever he wills. Nebuchadnezzar, who as an evil person really was far more notorious, more smug, more pleased with himself probably than his own grandson, he was nevertheless shown grace. Remember, God first put him on notice and on probation for a year before he turned him into a cow. And, and Nebuchadnezzar had every opportunity to repent. But during that year of probation, he only became more pleased with himself. And then in this agonizing seven-year-long ordeal that was really an act of amazing grace, God humbled him and redeemed him, and elicited from him a testimony that gave all the glory to God. And what you're going to see in chapter 5 is that Belshazzar 
it stands in stark contrast to his own grandfather. He is given no warning and no space to repent. He's doomed from the time he is introduced to us. And he stands only as a lesson about the dangers of unbelief. And this chapter highlights at least six features of unbelief that guaranteed the doom of Belshazzar. And I want to point them out to you as we follow through the narrative. And it's interesting because they form a neat acronym for the first six letters of the alphabet. So I'm calling this the ABCs of unbelief, okay? And the first is arrogance. Arrogance. Bear in mind that Babylon is under siege. Belshazzar is both oblivious to and unconcerned about the threat that is posed by these invading armies, massive armies that are camped just outside the city gates. The engineers and the defense experts of Babylon had assured him and the people that the city defenses were strong enough to withstand a siege of 70 years. Armies could dig under those walls and do whatever they wanted for 70 years, and they still weren't going to get in. And Belshazzar was so brashly and pompously certain that the the Medes and the Persians posed no immediate threat to his safety that he decides to put on this massive drunken orgy as if to show his disdain for his enemies in the most graphic way possible. He's just going to get drunk to show that he doesn't, he doesn't, he's not concerned about them. The text says he made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. And the implication is that he was purposely drinking wine in copious amounts publicly, deliberately getting drunk in the most public possible manner in order to show his contempt for the Medes and the Persians by intentionally drinking to excess. The armies of the Medes and the Persians were under the command of Cyrus II of Persia. This is Cyrus the Great, if you know history. The secular record reveals that Belshazzar's father, Nabonidus, had taken the armies of Babylon out to mount an attack against Cyrus, which left Belshazzar in charge of the capital city. Unbeknownst to Belshazzar, his father's troops had surrendered to Cyrus just two days before Belshazzar started this banquet, which makes his cocksure arrogance doubly appalling. He didn't know the Babylonian armies had already lost. He was engaged in this drunken orgy, oblivious to the doom that is already beginning to overtake him, and the more he drank, the more arrogant he became. Verse 2 highlights the second evil feature of his unbelief. If you're taking notes, this is the second one. Blasphemy. I told you they follow the alphabet, so you can figure these out. Blasphemy. The depraved character of this drunken celebration now manifests itself. This, I said, is a a pagan religious sacrament with Eucharistic overtones. And now it becomes a deliberate act of blasphemy aimed directly at the Hebrew God. You remember how... Nebuchadnezzar had ransacked the temple in Jerusalem, and I read at the beginning how he carried away all the sacred vessels. And the vessels he took are actually listed for us in 2 Kings 25, verses 14 and 15. He took away the pots and the shovels and the snuffers and the gifts and the dishes for incense and all the vessels of bronze that are used in the temple service, the fire pans and also the bowls. So, in other words, pretty much everything that was made of precious metal and small enough to carry, he took it. And there were lots of these things. And when the Jews returned 
from their exile after 70 years, they brought these things back and counted and cataloged them all. And the details of that are recorded in Ezra chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. This was the number of them. So we have the precise number. 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought from Babylon to Jerusalem. And those same vessels then make an appearance here in Daniel 5, verse 2. Belshazzar, when he tested the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought so that the king and the lords and his, and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So remember, there's 5,400 of these vessels and thousands of his lords, they call them, his underlings. And so he passes out the vessels and they're all going to drink wine from the sacred vessels of the temple in Jerusalem. Verse 3, they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So they're deliberately using Yahweh's worship implements to commit this blasphemy that they direct towards all of these pagan deities and idols. This is deliberate blasphemy, and it is performed with evil mirth and drunken laughter. And bear in mind that most of these are vessels, as I described, they're not designed for drinking. They include shovels and snuffers and incense holders and fire pans. But Belshazzar hauls them out and drinks his wine from them and urges his princes and his concubines to join in the revelry. And they dedicate this whole blasphemous ceremony to their pagan idols of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which is a pretty strong clue that the whole point of this religious ceremony from the very start is a public repudiation of Nebuchadnezzar's conversion to the Hebrew God. And the God who, through Daniel, had foretold the fall of Babylon and the rise of the succession of empires. So as openly as possible... Belshazzar is showing his defiant unbelief in that prophecy that Babylon would fall, and he is exhibiting his utter hatred for the true God whom his own grandfather had embraced and confessed. This was a conscious, calculated, resounding act of deliberate blasphemy against Yahweh. Now, all unbelief has an element of blasphemy in it. And here, Belshazzar makes his blasphemous disdain for the Hebrew God as graphic and as flamboyant as possible. And I have to pause here and say, I see a direct connection between this type of purposeful blasphemy and what the governor of California did by putting the Word of God on billboards advertising abortion. By the way, yesterday he signed a decree saying that California is now a sanctuary state for young people, minors, who want to get sex change operations. We'll do it in California if your state outlaws it. It's as evil as it can possibly get, and very much reminiscent of what's going on here. So here's a third evil feature of unbelief. C, confusion. There's an inherent cluelessness 
in all unbelief. We talked about it a little bit last night, the noetic effects of sin. That sin makes you stupid. And 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. But Belshazzar is profoundly stupid, and you see that in everything he does, his, his carefree attitude while his nation's very existence is being threatened, severely threatened. That's one expression of his stupidity. And after everything his grandfather had experienced, Belshazzar's open show of defiance and loathing for God trumps everything for sheer stupidity. But, but now while he is in the very act of blaspheming God, the Lord himself crashes the party with a visible display of sovereign power. I love this. And Belshazzar hasn't got a clue what's happening. Verse 5, Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand, and the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. And the king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lord's were perplexed. So suddenly this whole gathering is thrown into confusion and Belshazzar, you know, he's already well into a drunken state anyway. He suddenly realizes that something profound is happening that is far beyond his power to command or comprehend or control. The arrogance suddenly evaporates from his attitude and the blood drains from his face. Repeatedly, the text tells us his color changed. He calls for his magi, the wise men. His fear and confusion are evident in the fact that he, he, it says he called loudly to bring in the, the enchanters. He's panicking here. And uh, the hand appears. It writes. The noise of this drunken revelry suddenly grows silent. And Belshazzar's voice pierces the silence with this loud call for help from his soothsayers. He promises a reward of gold and a promotion to third place in the kingdom. You get that because Nabonidus is still the king. He's first. Belshazzar, his son, is co-regent, so he's second. Whoever deciphers the handwriting on the wall is going to be third place in the kingdom. But the wisest men in the kingdom couldn't explain or interpret the writing. All that collective wisdom and, and not one man among them had any insight into the meaning of this phenomenon. So verse 4, verse 9, King Belshazzar and his lords were perplexed. Confusion. It's one of the inevitable effects of unbelief. You, you doubt God, you will be confused. Here's the, here's the fourth feature, dullness. Dullness. This whole dilemma echoes a scene from years before. If you compare verse 8 with Daniel 2.27... No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. Same thing happens here in, in 
uh, happens again in Daniel 4, and then it happens here again in Daniel 5. So the very wisest men in all of Babylon never do seem able to interpret any sign from God. That's because their wisdom is not the wisdom that comes down from above. It's earthly, demonic, unspiritual, to borrow words from the book of James. As Jesus said to the Pharisees in John 8, 43, Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. Their unbelief made them dull of hearing, and it dulled all of their spiritual senses. And what stands out here is that Belshazzar seems utterly oblivious to the history of his grandfather's dealings with Daniel. You remember that when Daniel interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2, Daniel was promoted to vice-regent, second in command in the capital province. Daniel 2.48, the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and made him the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. So in his prime, Daniel had been a man of great influence and power, and he was in charge of all the wise men in Babylon. He had appointed three associates, Jewish young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to assist him in that capacity. And at the end of chapter 3, all of them are still in positions of high prominence, but not now, 25 years later. Sometime during that 20-year gap between Daniel 4 and Daniel 5, Daniel and his friends had been either demoted or retired or otherwise relieved of their high positions, and by Belshazzar's time, it seems like the king didn't even know who Daniel was. There's another clue that the current regime has purposely done everything they could to purge the memory of Nebuchadnezzar's conversion and erase the influence of the Hebrew God from all their collective consciousness. The the Babylonian concept, you know, was that the state is the incarnation of God, very much like the American Democratic Party believes. The state, you know, is the source of truth and virtue and domestic security. It's the final judge of right and wrong and and the ultimate arbiter of morality. The ruler is the undisputed high priest. Does that sound familiar or what? And any hint that the Hebrew God was you know, looking to exert any kind of authority or command was resented. And the Hebrew God himself became an unwelcome challenge to the Babylonian point of view that the the government itself is sovereign. The history of Daniel's dealings with Nebuchadnezzar were therefore written out of the official record. Belshazzar had totally missed the main lessons he might have learned from his grandfather's experience his spiritual perception, his own conscience, his memory, all had been systematically dulled. But the queen still remembered Daniel. Chapter 5, verse 10. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, 
made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams and explain riddles and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. So this is now Belshazzar's only hope of understanding the writing on the wall. So he summons Daniel. And now we see feature five of his unbelief. And it is a remarkable display of egomania. E in your alphabet, egomania. Belshazzar speaks to Daniel in in a subtly condescending way. Verse 13, then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I've heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now, the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now, understand the background here. Belshazzar is a, he's a classic anti-Semite. He has nothing but contempt for the Jews. And he pretends to know nothing about Daniel. And in his very first sentence, he reminds Daniel that he's Jewish. Daniel is an exile. He was conquered and deprived of his freedom by Nebuchadnezzar. And furthermore, any advantage or any glory Daniel ever enjoyed is a borrowed Babylonian benefit. Even Belshazzar's recitation of, of Daniel's accomplishments is it's muted and it's inaccurate. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you. No mention of the one true God whom Belshazzar has just been blaspheming. He knows about Yahweh, and he knows surely that Yahweh is Daniel's God, but he says it this way instead. He refuses to acknowledge Yahweh. Still, the king offers gifts and status to Daniel if he can interpret the writing on the wall, which also is a backhanded insult. Remember, Daniel had actually once held a higher position than Belshazzar is now offering him back when Belshazzar was still in diapers. Daniel was second in the kingdom. Now he's offering him to be third. This is either incredible ignorance or more likely, as we're about to see, it was a deliberate insult on Belshazzar's part. Either way, it shows what an unbelievable egomaniac he is. And Daniel, who is in no mood to mince words, is about to expose Belshazzar for what he is, that he is an evil, unbelieving, egomaniacal fool. And here's the sixth feature of all unbelief. Number six, foolishness. Foolishness. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. There's a a built-in foolishness in all unbelief. And it's on full display here. Verse 17, then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. So he says, I don't want, I don't want your honors. Tonight of all nights, Daniel had no, no desire to be third in this kingdom because it's about to be overthrown. Nevertheless, he says, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. And then before explaining the handwriting, 
Daniel preaches a sermon to the king using the king's grandfather as his main illustration, and he rehearses the history of Nebuchadnezzar's conversion. O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. In other words, you're not offering me something from Babylon. My God gave your grandfather his authority over Babylon to begin with. And 19, because of, verse 19, because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and language trembled and feared before him, whom he would he killed and whom he would he kept alive, whom he would he raised up and whom he would he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And in, in, here in one simple sentence, Daniel sums up and exposes and indicts Belshazzar for his arrogance, his blasphemy, his confusion, his dullness, his egomania, and his foolishness. Verse 22, And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all of this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, That's the damning charge. You knew all of this. Your sin has been deliberate. Verse 23, And the vessels of God's house have been brought in before you, and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose, whose are all your ways, you have not honored him. You sinned directly against God. You waved your unbelief in his face. Verse 24, Daniel continues. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the manner. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, that's the singular form of a parson. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Specifically, Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Persian took over the kingdom, and they did. Literally, the writing meant, those words meant, numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. Those are Chaldean words. And verse 30 says, Belshazzar was a Chaldean. So he knew the words. It was the message he couldn't comprehend. This was a declaration of judgment and a pronouncement of doom against him personally and against all of Babylon. It was also a direct condemnation of the Babylonian religion, along with every other pagan religion and every sub-Orthodox attempt to rewrite Biblical soteriology, the way of salvation. The image of a a judgment with scales is what most people expect, and it's the very thing fools hope for. This is the epitome of human self-righteousness. Every religion ever invented by the human mind has at its core the foolish notion that we can earn favor with God if we just do enough good things to atone for and outweigh our sins. That's the 
the driving notion of our culture today as well, that, you know, somebody like Steve Jobs must be in heaven because he accomplished so many things that changed the way we live. And Mother Teresa must be there, has to be there because of all her philanthropic works. Every unbelieving rich person and every worldly power broker hangs his hope on that same rickety coat rack. But there's not a person alive or anyone who has ever lived who can be weighed in the balances and not found wanting. And Belshazzar is a prime example. One of the world's most powerful and advantaged people, he utterly wasted every advantage he ever had. He had never humbled his heart, even though he knew the truth about Yahweh. Belshazzar was one dull-hearted, confused unbeliever, and he was a fool. Even after hearing the prophecy of doom, he made a public show of fulfilling his promise to Daniel, verse 29. He gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck. A proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. He clearly still doesn't believe God. Why is he declaring Daniel third ruler in the kingdom now? He clearly does not believe that his own doom is about to catch up to him and that the empire will be overthrown. And this is more evidence of his spiritual dullness. It shows what a complete fool he is. Remember that I mentioned the armies of Cyrus had been doing a digging project outside the city walls? They weren't building a rampart. They weren't trying to tunnel under the wall. They were diverting the flow of the Euphrates River which flowed under the wall to bring water into the city. And when the water level dropped, Cyrus and his men simply slipped under the wall where the river had once flowed. It's a poetic bookend, actually, to the fall of Nineveh, exactly 73 years earlier than this. In Nineveh, the Kozer River flowed under the massive walls of Nineveh and went right through the heart of that city. But the Kozer flooded and caused a large section of that wall to collapse, and that's what finally exposed Nineveh to invading armies. Here, Cyrus simply diverts the river, and the water level drops enough to let his soldiers simply walk under the wall and into the city, and Cyrus's army arrived in the city that very night while Belshazzar and his princes were still drunk from their wine, wine fest. Verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. The situation reminds me of uh, the warning of things yet to come in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 3. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But the central lesson here is exactly the same as chapter 4. And it's the overall theme of Daniel. The Lord's dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven, among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? In other words, God is absolutely sovereign. And the correlative truth is the very heart of the gospel. Only God can save. If you think your own accomplishments will be enough to win favor for yourself in God's eyes, then when you are weighed in the balances, you will be found wanting. The only hope of salvation 
is unconditional surrender to the one true and sovereign God who promises to save all who come to him through Christ. And furthermore, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's Romans 10.13. You have that very same promise in Acts 2.21. And it echoes the promise Jesus made in John 6.40. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Think about this. If Nebuchadnezzar can be saved, you too can be saved, no matter how dark the history of your sin. If the power and influence of Belshazzar couldn't save him, neither can your accomplishments give you any hope. The same corruptions that fed Belshazzar's unbelief, arrogance, blasphemy, confusion, dullness, egotism, foolishness, these are the common sins of fallen humanity. All of us are guilty of those very same transgressions. All of us. And the only remedy is grace. But the good news is, God is gracious to all who call upon him. Let's pray. Father, we confess that you are truly and totally sovereign. If it were not for your grace, none of us would even be under the sound of your word. Your word says you give more grace. You give grace to the humble. Give us grace to be humble and multiply that grace so that we might glorify you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church, or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.